We are continuing our series, and we're in part four of the series, I Believe in Miracles. And we're going through this series to try to build our faith and grab hold of the power of God. I was introduced to faith in Jesus through the miraculous intervention of God in my life. And so I believe in miracles, and I'm believing for more, and I'm believing for you to be able to grab hold of miracles in your life as well. Last time we talked about Peter walking on water. Amazing. Jesus walked on water, but then he invited Peter to come out on the water as well. Peter came out, walked on water, and then he sank. Jesus lifted him back up and they got back in the boat and all was good. So from last week, walking by faith is risky but Jesus will catch you. So let's walk by faith. Let's grab hold of the most that we can grab hold of all of the good things of God. Today, we're going to look at a miracle from 2 Kings chapter 6, God's armies revealed. All right. So we're going Old Testament. In the day that we're going to here, it was a harsh world. It was very much a might makes right kind of a world. There was no real security. There was war all the time. It was just a rough world to live in. I am thankful, even though, you know, hey, how stable is our world? It's a lot more stable (laughs) than it was back then. And uh, I believe the United States is a great country. It's a privilege to live here and have the opportunities that are here. And we need to be careful not to think that everything is all messed up. A lot of things are, but it is way better than so many other times in history and a wonderful place to live. So here we're looking at the nation of Israel that is at war with Aram. And Israel has a secret weapon in this fight, and it is Elisha the prophet. So here we go. We're going to 2 Kings chapter 6, starting in verse 8. And it says this, Now the king of Aram was at war with Israel. After conferring with his officers, he said, I will set up my camp in such and such a place. The man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware of passing that place because the Arameans are going down there. So the king of Israel checked on the place indicated by the man of God. Time and again, Elisha warned the king so that he was on his guard in such places. This enraged the king of Aram. He summoned his officers and demanded of them, Tell me, which of us is on the side of the king of Israel? None of us, my lord the king, said one of his officers. But Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. So Elisha is being told by God all of the strategies, all of the plans that the the Arameans are doing. And this makes the king of Aram think there's a spy. Somebody here is telling them. And this individual says to the king, look, don't come after us. We're on your side, but Almighty God is telling the prophet Elisha everything that you say. So that's what our problem is. So what are they going to do about that? Verse 13, go find out where he is, the king ordered, so I can send men and capture him. The report came back. He is in Dothan. Then he sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and surrounded the city. 
when the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh no, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. As the enemy came down toward him, Elisha prayed to the Lord, strike this army with blindness. So he struck them with blindness as Elisha had asked. Elisha told them, this is not the road and this is not the city. Follow me and I will lead you to the man you are looking for. And he led them to Samaria. After they entered the city, Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men so they can see. Then the Lord opened their eyes and they looked and there they were inside Samaria. When the king of Israel saw them, he asked Elisha, shall I kill them? My father, shall I kill them? Do not kill them. He answered, would you kill those you have captured with your own sword or bow? Set food and water before them so that they may eat and drink and then go back to their master. So he prepared a great feast for them. And after they had finished eating and drinking, he sent them away and they returned to their master. So the bands from Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. So that was the end of the war. Now, Samaria apparently was the capital of Israel at that time. And so when Elisha brought the army in. It was bringing them right into the stronghold of Israel. They were at the mercy of the king of Israel. But instead of them all being wiped out and killed, they get a great feast and they get released. What do we learn from this? The first thing we learn is that there's a whole lot more going on than what we see. <laughs> There is a spiritual world. There are angels and demons and God is doing things. There's a lot more going on than just this world that we see in front of us. Back then, Elisha prayed for his servant to be able to have his eyes open, to be able to see the armies of the Lord. When he was able to see, he realized that there was a lot more going on than he could see before. And this has not changed since back then. The angels are still there. The demons are still there. There's still a spirit world. This is still part of reality. And one of the things that I find kind of exciting is that science is beginning to see this to some extent. You know, if you look into theoretical physics and that sort of a thing, you'll see that people just do not believe in a four-dimensional atheistic viewpoint anymore. It might be an 11-dimensional atheistic viewpoint or a multi-parallel you know, parallel universe atheistic perspective, but they do not believe that the visible world is all there is. They believe in all these other possibilities. And of course, in theoretical physics, they're not going to say, oh, look what we've discovered. You know, Jesus is Lord. You know that, of course, they're not going to go that far. But absolutely, there is room in our understanding for a rational faith in the spirit world, a rational faith in much more beyond what we can see. So this I find very exciting. There is so much more happening now that we don't see than what we can see. 
and we need our eyes opened to the armies of the Lord. Now, don't go off the rails with this and start seeing a demon behind every corner. That's not healthy. Remember, uh, we've talked about 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The Jews look for signs and Greeks demand wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Make sure that you understand that Jesus died for you, that he will not leave you or forsake you, but he's going to see you through to the end. So you can just relax. You don't have to worry about every demon behind every door, all that sort of thing. Just relax. The good news is that God is more powerful than the devil and that the angels outnumber the demons two to one. This is the good news. God is more powerful than the devil. It's not that there's God and the devil and we're trying to figure out who's going to win. There is God and there's the devil and there's angels and demons. And then there's us running around. That's the way it is. God is almighty, all powerful. He is above all. So we don't need to be afraid of the spirit world, afraid of the darkness, but we do need to grab hold of how to live in the midst of that and not get on the wrong end of it. So we need to think about and understand 2 Kings 6.16. Here, Elisha says to his servant, don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. In the natural, all that the servant could see was the bad guys. They were surrounded. They were in real trouble. But when his eyes opened, he realized that all of the armies of God were there. Chariots of fire, the whole deal. That's just amazing. So point number one is that there is a whole lot more going on than what we can see. So if you think, yeah, all there is is, you know, what I can see, X, Y, Z, access and time. It's all there is. It's just simply not the case. Science doesn't bear that out. Of course, scripture does not bear that out. There is a whole lot more going on than what we can see. And we can tap into that. Elisha prayed for his servant to have his eyes opened. And we can tap into spiritual forces as well. There is a whole lot more going on than what we can see. That's point number one. Point number two. You can have peace in times of trouble. I think it's really interesting to compare the reactions of Elisha and Elisha's servant in this situation because they were both in the exact same situation, but they had very different reactions to the situation. So verse 15, when the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh no, my Lord. What shall we do? The servant asked. Of course, he's panicking because they've been telling the king of Israel all of the secrets of the army of Aram. And now the army of Aram has encircled them and they're in a world of hurt. And so he's freaking out. Elisha is not freaking out. Why is that? They're both together. They're in the same situation. The reason Elisha wasn't freaking out is because he knew more then the servant did. He knew, verse 16, don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. They were in exactly the same situation. The difference was that Elisha knew God's armies were there, but his servant did not. His servant thought, we're alone, we're doomed, 
It's just you and me, and we can't stand against this army. But instead, the truth was that God had an army there, an angel army to overcome the Arameans, and they were perfectly safe and about to get an amazing victory. So you can have peace in times of trouble, just like Elisha did. The difference is having the right spiritual eyes, being able to see. Jesus said something rather remarkable in Matthew chapter 6, Matthew 6, 22 and 23. Here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? So what do you see? Do you see hopelessness? You're in real trouble. There's nothing you can do. You just feel trapped. Or do you see an opportunity for God to redeem the situation, for God to come through, that you can walk by faith in the midst of this. And even if like last week, you're out on the water and you begin to sink, Jesus is still going to catch you when you say, Lord, help me. What do you see? This is a crazy world. And we as believers in Jesus can feel outnumbered and vulnerable. Now, I'm going to tell you a little bit about my first years as a Christian. I got saved in 1988, non-Christian household and I would even say a hostile household to uh, Christianity, great people, high quality people, uh, but not people of faith, not people who valued faith, people who were hostile to faith. And I didn't really know anything about churches or Bible colleges or anything along those lines. I only knew the secular world. And so I was in college and I didn't know what to do. So I started studying philosophy because that was as close to you know, discussing these sorts of things as I could find. And so I end up in from a non-Christian family, no support network there in secular, you know, state universities studying philosophy. And I was outnumbered, man. I was absolutely in a small, small minority of ridiculed believers in Jesus. You know, it was just a situation where I was kind of out there and didn't have a support network around me. But I didn't feel alone. For one thing, I was friendly. And guess what? If people who disagree with you are around and you're friendly with them, they're most likely going to be friendly with you. You know, they might look at you funny when you say something or that sort of a deal. But if you are kind, usually kindness comes back. If you are gracious, usually something good comes back. So that was my experience. Outnumbered, in an environment where my values and my beliefs were not shared. And yet I had great relationships with the individuals that, that I knew. It wasn't something where I saw a lot of anger and fighting and personal attacks, except maybe some family members. As far as people at school, it wasn't like that. They just disagreed. And it was actually not that bad. But I think part of the reason why it went well is because I was secure in who I was as a believer. I wasn't going to be shaken. I had seen the hand of God. I knew the power of God. I'd seen the miraculous intervention of God in my life. And I wanted to try to figure out how all of that was even possible, but I didn't need to figure out whether or not it had happened, whether or not God was real. 
I had gone through that process already and come to faith in Christ and a faith that wasn't going to be shaken by somebody disagreeing with me or making fun of me or thinking that my values and my viewpoints were foolish. That wasn't going to shake who I was. And so outnumbered, disagreed with, even made fun of to some extent and opposed in certain circles, not a problem. It did not shake me. I was a lot more like Elisha than like the servant because I knew, hey, God's got me. God is bigger than all of this. If I'm with him, who's going to be against me? It was something that I was able to have confidence in the midst of. And I want you to have that same confidence. I see too many Christians who, when someone disagrees with them, they're shaken. When someone makes fun of them, they're shaken. When someone, you know, when the culture goes a different direction, they're shaken. Let's not be shaken. Instead, let's trust in the mighty hand of God. Because those who are with us are more than those who are against us. And 1 John 4.4 is a fantastic verse along these same lines. 1 John 4.4 says this, You dear children are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. So we overcome the opposition. We overcome people who disagree. We overcome because greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. The presence of God, the spirit of God in me, you know, Christ in me, the hope of glory is greater than what the world has to attack me with. So we can be confident and have peace in times of trouble. Also, point number three is that we need to see the scripture through the lens of 2 Kings 6.16, there's more with us than against us. And 1 John 4.4, 4, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. If we can see the scriptures that we read through this lens, they will make more sense. Because imagine what Elisha's servant thought when he first said, you know what, we got more people on our side than they do on their side. He probably thought, it's not time to over-spiritualize this, Elijah. We got to get out of here. <laughs> like, this is going to be bad. They got chariots and they got, they don't like us. It's going to be bad. You know, what was he thinking? Like, that doesn't even make any sense. But then when his eyes were opened and he saw the armies of God, it was like, oh, it is going to be okay. So when we can read the scriptures through the lens of Greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world, that we have more on our side than they have on their side. Then even when we feel outnumbered, even when we feel overwhelmed, we can trust in God. So let's look at the scriptures through this. I want to look at two specific scriptures. I want to look at James 4, 7, which has three pieces to it. It says, submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So we can view this from two perspectives, from the perspective of the servant of Elisha before his eyes were opened, and then from the servant of Elijah after his eyes are opened. So what is the difference? At first, okay, submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. Do you picture yourself alone in that? You submit to God, that's, you're supposed to do that, you're a good Christian, submit to God, you know, your will be done. Resist the devil. Hey, devil, you go away. You leave me alone. You know, you have no right to mess with me. And then he'll flee. If you feel alone in that, you're not going to sense the power 
of that verse. But if you understand that there are angel armies, that there is a spirit world, and that greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world, and that the team we have on our side is greater <laughs> than the team that the enemy has, then when we read, submit yourself then to God, resist the devil and he will flee, we can see it and understand it. Oh, I'm not alone. I'm not by myself. I'm not here outnumbered being crushed by forces bigger than me. I am in the midst of angel armies. I have the power of God on my side. I can resist the devil and he will flee. James 4, 7 begins to make sense. So see the scriptures through the lens of 2 Kings 6, 16 and 1 John 4, 4. Submit to God. Then the angel armies will help you. And when you resist, the devil must flee. He is a defeated foe. We can apply this also to Philippians 4, 6 and 7. Philippians 4, 6, and 7 is an often quoted section of scripture. I think it's fantastic. The problem that we have is actually grabbing hold of it, just like with James 4, 7. It's a nice scripture to read. Grabbing hold of it, actually getting there is the challenge. So let's go to Philippians 4, 6, and 7, where it says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So, do not be anxious about anything. That means that there are things to be anxious about, that the normal reaction would be to be anxious. So when you see yourself full of anxiety, full of fear, full of worry, full of all these things, then... By prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. So go to God with it. I'm worried about this. I'm concerned about this. I've got trouble in this area. This isn't working in my life. I don't understand what's going on. You can, instead of being full of anxiety and fear and all of those negative things, instead, you can go to God and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, if you think this is just a cutesy little verse that you go say and you're on your own and there's no help, then how is the peace of God going to come on you? But if you know that our God is the God of angel armies and greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And when we have all of these anxieties and these fears and these concerns, and we're all worried, and then we present them to God and we build our thankfulness and we have these requests, then we know we can trust God because he's not going to be overrun. He's not going to be conquered by the darkness. And so we can have peace knowing that God is well able to meet our need, to be there with us, don't feel alone. Don't feel outnumbered. Don't feel vulnerable. Instead, trust that God is powerful and there's more going on than what you can see. If you read Philippians 4, 6, and 7, and you try to grab hold of that peace that will guard your heart and your mind, and you do feel alone, you do feel outnumbered, you do feel vulnerable, and it's not going to work. You're going to be stuck in the place where Elisha's servant was before his eyes are opened. But once your eyes are opened and you realize, oh, I've got help. <laughs> there, there, there are angels coming to help me. I'm in a safe spot. Then that peace that passes all understanding can be yours. Now, it doesn't mean that everything's going to be perfect. 
I think uh, the martyr Stephen is a great example. He said what God called him to say. People responded by stoning him to death. But in the midst of that, he saw the face of God and he was not traumatized. He was not spiritually damaged. And he went to be with Jesus and got the reward of a martyr. It all worked out great. So there's a whole lot more going on than we can see. You can have peace in times of trouble. We need to see the scripture through the lens of greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And that there are more on our side than on the enemy's side. And then here's point number four. God has unconventional ways for us to win the battle. For us to win the spiritual battle. For us to win in advancing the kingdom of God. God has unconventional ways for us to win. How did God end this particular war with Aram? Well, he caused them to become blind and helpless, led them into a place where they knew that they were doomed. And instead of something bad happening, instead of them all being killed, which was fairly common in the Old Testament, they were all fed, given a great feast, and they were released to go home and tell their king what had happened. They went home and said, hey, we're not attacking Israel anymore. We're not going to bother with them. We can't win. We're just going to leave them be. And the king was like, wow. All right. Let's mind our own business. It'll be okay. They won the battle in a very unconventional way. No swords, no arrows, no spears, no death. It was giving them a great feast and releasing them to go home and talk about the power of God. In the New Testament, war is waged very differently than in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there were many, many wars. You know, Saul has killed his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Ah, it's a harsh world that they lived in. In the New Testament, we do not wage war in the same ways. These last 2,000 years that the, the plan of salvation has been revealed to us through the New Testament scriptures, we know that the spiritual battle is not won with swords. The spiritual battle is not won by killing people. When Peter whacked off Malchus's ear, Jesus says, no, that's not how we're doing this one. Heals the man. And then Peter had some lessons to learn on how to wage war for the kingdom of God the right way. God has unconventional ways for us to win the battle. Now, I want to talk about something that sometimes is difficult for me to get out. And so I'm believing God for it to come out right. So please believe with me and please help me. Try to hear me right. Something that I'll tell people when I'm meeting with them and they're not sure if they're going to say something right. I'll say, hey, don't worry about it. You can say it wrong. I'll hear it right. And I'm hoping you'll give me some grace with this because it's difficult to talk about and have people understand exactly where your heart is. But I want you to catch my heart. So I ask you to come with me on a little journey and try to feel my heart. Here we go. Now, I don't get political much in church. If you've noticed, you know, I'm not talking about who to vote for. I'm not ranting on this or that. Let me talk about the ministry strategy behind that. In our one minute blessing, we prayed for the Women's Care Center. Why did we do that? Why do we support them? Because as Christians, we believe in the sanctity of human life. That is, we believe that every life is a sacred thing. All religions have their things that are sacred. One of the sacred things in Christianity is each individual person. Sacred from the beginning, from conception on. God has a plan, knit together in their mother's womb, a sacred 
life. Even the unwanted unborn are sacred. And in the United States, you know, we're in the COVID era. Hopefully it'll be over soon. I'm believing for that. Let's have a great summer. But in the COVID area, people are all worried over 500,000 people in the United States have died from COVID. There have been more abortions than that in that same time frame. And abortions are down. So through the years, there's been way more than all of that. And it, it's something that when you know that's a sacred thing, it touches you. So what do we do? What is the Christian response to this problem? And so here's where I need you to, to help me out. Do we participate in the political system? Yes, we do. <laughs> we participate in the political system. Vote. You can call your congressperson. Do all that stuff. That stuff is fine. But there's a tremendous limit to what we can accomplish through political means. The final goal is not just to have abortion be illegal and then we have a bunch of unwanted children born into harsh circumstances to be neglected, abused, and caught up in that same cycle. That's not what we're going for. Instead, what we need is a generation that understands their divine value, who lives accordingly, and who then values life that they bring into this world, bringing in new life that is valued. That's what we need. So I want abortion to stop because so many people are coming to faith and understanding who they are in Christ, their own divine value, and they're seeing other people as sacred, and they understand the value of the next generation, and they live in the midst of God's love and respect, and they see children as sacred and understand the goodness of God that I want people seeing that so that then abortion stops because the demand just dries up and goes away. Wouldn't that be so much better? Now, am I pro-life? Absolutely. I would love for abortion to be illegal, but I so much more want every life to be valued and seen as the sacred thing that it is. So much more want that. It is so much deeper, so much more powerful. Understand this, since 1980, I did a little bit of research ahead of time, abortion is down about 50%. It's about half of what it was annually now than it was 40 years ago. That's amazing. I was a little bit surprised at how high the abortion rates are in red states compared to blue states. Red states have plenty of abortion. What we need is for people to see their own value in Christ through God to rise to the occasion, knowing who they are, their divine value, and to value others. And then this begins to fade away. So let's fight this war with love, with compassion, with understanding, with forgiveness, with redemption, with value, with truth, with hope, and with faith. Let's bring that to this world and get to revival get to a place where God is meeting us here and we are seeing the good things of God, the intervention of God, and people are stepping into new life. That's so much deeper and so much stronger. So let's land the plane. Our four lessons that we learned through the story of God's armies being revealed to Elisha's servant is there's a whole lot more going on in the spirit than what we can see. That you can have peace in times of trouble because you trust in what God is doing. 
We need to read the scriptures through the lens of this, understanding there's a spirit world, that God is there moving in our midst, and that God has unconventional ways for us to win the battle. My bottom line goal, why I picked to go through this miracle, is because I don't want you to feel abandoned and alone. I want you to know that God is there, that he's with you, he loves you, He may be weeping with you. He may be hurting with you if you are hurting and you are weeping, but he has not abandoned you. He has not left you. That's what I want. But for some of you, you still feel abandoned. You still feel alone. And the miracle I want you to grab hold of today is to know that God is there. So I want to read an old poem called Footprints in the Sand. You may have heard of it. It's a beautiful poem that I think fits into this topic very directly. I'm going to read the poem, and then we're going to close in prayer. Footprints in the Sand. One night, I dreamed I was walking along the beach with the Lord. Many scenes from my life flashed across the sky. In each scene, I noticed footprints in the sand. Sometimes there were two sets of footprints. Other times, there was one only. This bothered me because I noticed that during the low periods of my life, when I was suffering from anguish, sorrow, or defeat, I could only see one set of footprints. So I said to the Lord, you promised me, Lord, that if I followed you, you would walk with me always. But I have noticed that during the most trying periods of my life, there has only been one set of footprints in the sand. Why, when I needed you most, have you not been there for me? The Lord replied, the times when you have seen only one set of footprints, my child, is when I carried you. Heavenly Father, I pray for anyone who feels abandoned and alone like you have left them, forsaken them, and that there's no hope, that they would know that you do love them, that you do care. They find themselves in a place where they feel trapped. They don't think there's any way out. Lord, I pray just like Elisha's servant, that you would open their eyes to the possibilities, to the hopes, the opportunities that you bring, because you have angel armies. You are the Lord of hosts. You have the power to set us free, to redeem, to break the chains, and to make us know that you love us and that you are there. So, Father, I pray for each one that feels alone and abandoned that they would get the miracle right now of knowing that you are there, that you care, that they are sacred and valued, and that you have a plan for them to have everlasting life, and that the harshness of this world will be relieved, and everlasting life will be beautiful and glorious and wonderful. So, Father, I pray for the person who is separate from you, that they would come to faith in you, Ask for forgiveness and freedom from the past and step into new life with you, trusting in what you've done on the cross, Lord Jesus. And for the rest of us, Lord, let us wage war with love, with forgiveness, with understanding, with showing people their value and showing them who they are in you, almighty God, sacred and loved and not alone. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.